0: beaches of south florida is that you hello oh my gosh how in the heck are you you look amazing today it is so good to see you again come on in have a seat follow us or subscribe or whatever it is your medium requires and stay a while we'd love to have you as part of our family say while you're here can i get you something to think today Even with my limited means, at 32 and out of necessity, I became pretty decent at building covered wagons. One time I found a Lynch pin and thought out loud to myself, I'll just make a wagon to fit that pin. <laughs> yeah, And so it was with my two homemade wagons, two yoke of oxen, three yoke of cows, a box of live chickens, a pregnant wife and two children ages five and three. With bedding and food, the missus and I... uh, Oh, excuse me. I haven't introduced myself yet. My name is Orville Sutherland Cox. Uh huh. Oh, sorry, dear. And this here is my wife, Elvira. Nice to meet you. Now, where was I? Oh, yes. Our family left the Elkhorn River in Nebraska, along with 130 other adventurers, as part of the Charles C. Rich Company we headed into the wild, wild west across the Great Plains, near the latter part of June, 1847. Boy, oh boy, we did not know what we was getting into. Well, on July 27th, as we were nearing Independence Rock along the Sweetwater River, we met an angry General Kearney and his company of battalion scouts. And to our surprise, Elvira's uncle... Sylvester Hewlett and my little brother Amos were with him. Well, they were two of fifteen men selected as an escort for the general as he returned to Fort Leavenworth. We was so happy to see him, but that joy was quickly dampened as I had to tell Amos the dreadful news that his nine-month-old baby daughter, Loenza Felina, had died from the whooping cough the December previous, just three days before Christmas. He had last seen his child when she was only four months old, uh, before he answered the call to serve his country during the war with Mexico, and now she was gone. Oh, dear heaven, Amos was so saddened, as was I to be telling him. We certainly mourned together. We we asked Amos where they were headed, found out that they had with them an illustrious prisoner and the goat pathfinder by the name of John C. Fremont Poor, hapless Colonel Fremont had been caught in the streams of a four-way political pitland match between a a commodore, a a general, his father-in-law, and the president of the United States. And now, Fremont, who would later himself be a presidential candidate, was on his way to a court-martial hearing. All right, folks, mound up. Ho! Weary and worn We arrived at our new home On October 2nd of that same year Just a few weeks later On Monday, November 29th A baby boy By the name of Orville Mills Cox Was born to Elvira and me In the territory of Deseret Now known as Utah Well, little Orb Was the first boy born in the new settlement Who would live to adulthood Two years later in the fall of 1849, Chief Wakara requested help to settle some land in the area now known as San Pete Valley and to teach the sand Pitch people how to farm. Wakara was the most influential leader of his day and had a reputation as a diplomat, horseman, warrior, and was known as an avid fisherman along the shores of Utah Lake. Wakara, later known as Chief Walker, could communicate in Spanish, English, and many native languages. The Shoshone ancestry of his Timpanogo and pitch band shared a cultural and linguistic heritage as part of the Numic branch of the Uto-Aztecan language family. Wakara is a Shoshone name meaning hawk. To Chief Walker's request, brigham young sent a group of 225 settlers under the direction of brother isaac morley this group of 40 families including ours spent the next few weeks breaking new roads fixing crossings and building dugways as industrious as as we attempted to be on some days we only moved forward two or three miles it was brutal that was one six mile stretch in salt creek canyon that occupied us an entire week We got a bit of a snow squall there before we skinned out. The trek was just over 120 miles as the crow flies, but what takes a modern day traveler less than two hours now took our trailblazing group an entire month. Of course, we weren't just trying to make a beeline for our destination. We were also preparing the route for future travelers that we knew were to follow. Hey. Can you keep a secret? Just between you and me. As we cleared that dreadful week of trailblazing in Salt Creek Canyon, and we were just crossing under the southern shadow of Mount Nebo. well, Chief Wakara pointed to an outcropping in the far southern end of the Sandpeep Valley, the direction we were headed to. I told Brother Morley that the hill was the site of an ancient temple altar, that the old ones, as he called them, well, they, they built the altars to give offerings to Towats. But we had to ask. Towats is a Uto Aztecan word meaning the Lord. He also told Isaac that there were caves under the hill that were very dangerous and admonished none of us to go in them. I don't know what that meant. But I wasn't about to be the one to find out. I had a wife and children to look after. A fellow can't very well care for his family if he's dead. Well, over the years, there were tales of mummies and records found. Ancient Egyptian writings, stories of Sasquatch attacks, and some other mysterious occurrences. Well, due to this and other experiences with them caves, Isaac deemed the mount as sacred believing this was, as he wrote in his journal, the very hill where an ancient people had lived and thrived. He had accounts of how these people had captured a man who was trying to enforce priestcraft by the sword. He was brought before their judge, found guilty, and executed on that very hill that we were headed toward. He said that an ancient temple once stood there. And here one day again would stand another this was as chief wakara said a sacred hill and so isaac named the location after the name found from his ancient account of the area today known as mantai even as it was called in days gone by and chill group arrived in the present day location of Manti, Utah on November 19th and it commenced to rain, which in the cooler temperatures of nightfall turned to snow. And it snowed and snowed and snowed, or as Chief Wakara would say, Daka it snowed a lot. In a short time, that snow reached the unusual depth of four feet on the level. The Mormonai, as we were referred to by the Sandpit people, were blamed for the Daka, the crazy snow, that first winter of 1849, and they were probably right, as we were there to show them how to farm and tame the land, so we were going to need water to do that, and we got plenty of it in the form of snow. We had camped along the south side of the hill for protection against the north wind, but our covered wagons offered very little shelter or warmth against that bitter cold. It was agreed that it was way too late in the season for us to get into the surrounding mountains for wood to build cabins, so the only alternative was to dig dugouts in the hillside and to do it immediately. I began digging in the hill of clay and shale right behind our wagon. Adelia, age 8, Al, age 5, and even little... Orville, who was almost to helped push the dirt from the doorway and carry the rocks away. It was definitely better to keep busy than to think about how cold and wet we were. What in the jack frost? It's getting downright frigid. That wind ain't helping anything either. You kids just rest inside away from the wind for a bit. I look this place over. Oh, there, yeah, that ought to keep the five of us out of the storm. You know, over the years, I had obtained experience as a frontiersman, a forester, lumberman, blacksmith. I even had a self-taught knack as an engineer, and pretty darn skilled at hewing and squaring logs with my axe. I wanted to make everything as comfortable as possible for our makeshift home. Now, kids, we'll all go down to the creek and cut some of those willows that's growing along the bank. And we'll help to use those to build a wall inside our home where we can have a little more privacy. What's that, Adelia, dear? Oh, honey, I know the snow's above your heads. I'll go first, okay? And push a path through with my body. Then you can follow along behind me. Well, we soon found that because of the exceeding depth of the snow, that Al... And Orville, Little Orville, were too short to bring any willows back, even holding their arms above their heads as far as they could reach. And so we called Mama to come and help. Sweet old Mama, she hadn't been feeling so good, mostly because we was expecting another baby in early spring, but she came and helped us the best she could. Thank the good Lord for Mamas. What would we do without them? It took us quite a spell, but when we finally got all the willows up to the dugout, I wove them into another room in front. Smoke from a fire in there could escape through the willow chinks while we kept warm and cozy inside the dugout. (coughs) During the severe winter, a measles epidemic broke out. Our new neighboring communities of settlers and Sampeach people shared between us our limited medicine supply and eventually our food. All winter long, we had to help the cattle find feed by shoveling snow in the meadows. It was a long, hungry, cold winter. The snow lasted until May. As soon as we could start clearing the land of sagebrush, the whole family went to work, except baby Delon, who was born in March. It was now time for irrigation ditches that had to be engineered, surveyed, and then dug. But then the usual labor of clearing Plowing and planting. It was on one of these warm, rustling spring evenings when Mama came from the field. As she drew near to the willow room of our house, a buzzing began. She retreated and it stopped. Then she moved forward again and it started. Well, cautiously, she peered into the willows and there above the doorway was a six-foot rattlesnake. Its tongue was flickering in and out of its mouth as fast as a hummingbird's wings. Well, yeah, she screamed. (coughs) And the neighbors came running from all directions. Well, they killed it. And another. And another. Everywhere they looked. Snakes were crawling out of the cracks and crevices from that hill. By the hundreds, they killed them. At first, the boys cut the buttons off each tail. But by dusk, the job had become too tedious. And still the snakes kept coming. Well, so they built bonfires so they could see by night. And they threw the dead rattlers on them. On into the night this went. And one by one, the children lay down around the fires and were soon dreaming of the scaly, slithery, slippery, striking snakes. Some say they killed 1,500 that first night. No one had bothered to count them. No one dared or even wanted to sleep in the dugouts for several days because, well, we continuously found those coiled snakes in our beds, in our drawers, even in our dishes and kettles. Miraculously no one reported being bitten. As that traumatizing spring eventually dissolved into a warm summer, little Orv, as we fondly called him, became listless and pale. Mama was a trained midwife and healer and would feel his forehead for fever and have him stick his tongue out. She made him a tonic by boiling sagebrush, but he didn't get better. By Mama's own words... I was sure he wouldn't. It was such foul-tasting stuff. One evening, two-year-old Orville, who was still sickly, picked up his bowl of bread and milk and started toward the doorstep to sit and eat it. Oh, Orv, why don't you stay inside tonight? There's so many mosquitoes out there. Poor little Orville whined and started to cry. I want to feed my Nicky. So Mama let him sit on the step. She noticed him take a spoonful of bread and milk from his cup and stoop over and hold it down for a moment before eating it. And then another spoonful was held down, and another, and another. Mama quickly positioned herself so that she could see his spoon as he held it down. And to her surprise and horror, coiled up on the ground beside two-year-old Orville was a large rattlesnake. Orville would eat one spoonful and give the second one to the snake. It would drink the milk off, and Orville would eat the bread that remained. (gasps) Look at this! Mother now realized the cause of the child's failing health. It was presumed at the time that there was a small amount of venom in the snake's mouth that made it onto the spoon each time. We now know that venoms are generally not toxic if swallowed, and must be injected under the skin by snakes and spiders, into the tissues that are normally protected by skin in order for the venom to be toxic. And in case you wanted to know, venom doesn't really smell like anything. And if you happen to accidentally taste venom, it would taste like a somewhat sweet, almost tangy version of water. However, it is not recommended to drink venom. So, if venom isn't such an obvious culprit for Little Orville, what was it? Well, with modern science and medicine, we know that bacterial infections secondary to snake bites and human pathogens have been linked to the oral microbiota of snakes and pet reptiles. Based on culture-dependent studies, it is speculated that snakes' oral microbiota reflects the fecal flora of their ingested preys. What does this mean? Well, Little Orville was getting low doses of salmonella poisoning. Well, needless to say, I killed the snake without hesitation. Poor little Orville. He cried into the night for his Nicky. I finally consoled him by telling him that I would get the buttons off tomorrow, and then he could carry his Nicky around with him forever after that. Little Orville was up early the next morning to make sure that I did what I had promised. You know, that little Orville Mills Cox is a prime example as to why... 43% 43% of the children in the 1800s didn't live past their fifth birthday. It wasn't just the ailments and the medical conditions. It was the wild nature of existence. The creatures, slithery and all. The hazards of being alive and being tossed into an ever-churning circle of life. As well as the ever-perilous atmosphere of carving out new portions of a growing nation. Yeah, Orville survived himself, and the wildness of the kingdom around him, but even as he grew to be a big boy, he would cuff down the middle of the road, the dust raising about him, twirling those dag-blasted rattlesnake buttons in rhythm. As he sang his little song, I had a pet by the name of Nicky, shared my sop and made me sickly. Papa killed it, cause it was deadly, so ended my poor Nicky. This... Wasn't the end of little Orville's near-death adventures. At the age of six, he was kicked in the head by a horse. Well, luckily the horse only grazed his head, but a large portion of his scalp was still torn loose. His mother, who was the skilled medic in the family, she remained calm and said, "He will be all right." She then proceeded to sew his scalp back into place while he was still unconscious. God bless mama. Here are my takeaways. Even though you might love them, some friends are bad for you. You don't have to get bit to get sick. There is often illness by association. And my personal recommendation, never make yourself sick just to try out the remedy. You know, that first experience with rattlesnakes for the pioneers in the San Pete Valley has left a lasting impression on the area. Indeed, one of the tallest mountain summits at 8,612 feet above sea level is named Rattlesnake Peak. And just a modern day tidbit that sheds some light on those hordes of serpents experienced that first spring in Manti. As temple work began in April of 1877, the builders creating the western foundation for the structure discovered an extensive network of caves and tunnels, obviously where the rattlesnakes used to nest in winter several decades earlier. And a final note about the hill in the Sandpit Valley, which Chief Walker referred to as sacred, and the place of an ancient temple well. In 1888, on that sacred hill in Manti, Utah, a new temple was completed, and it still stands today, although hopefully with a much smaller population of rattlesnakes. Thank you for listening to the Feeling Your Oats podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it. Growing listeners will allow complete focus on content. Once again, I am just randomly being me. Until next time, remember, when your why is clear, your how is easy. And hey, we'll see you in the spring if the water's clear. Well, Dad blessed it. I sure enjoyed the visit today. If you gained something from it, be kind enough to follow us and leave a review. And do it right now. If you would, it'd sure be appreciated. Your comments have been so considerate and honestly left me blushing. Good night, those reviews make a big difference in the program's visibility. On the Apple platforms, you select the Go to Show option, and then click the Circle Plus sign at the top right to follow. Then scroll down below the episodes to leave some stars and a review. Them algorithms need all the help they can get, so as I can disrupt more good folks like you. So I tell you what, if you got a friend or three that you just don't like very much, well, share this podcast with them and let us bug them for a while. And if you have comments or suggestions for future discussions, well, don't just keep them to yourself. We, we'd love to hear from you. You can DM us on our Instagrams at FYO.podcast. And thank you. Are you still there? Remember to download the Family Tree app and see how you are related to the people from today's episode. All those links will be included in the show notes. Sometimes it's important to look a gift horse in the mouth. Your gift is your ancestry, your superpower is their family history stories that make you. Not a one of us crawled out from under a rock, regardless of what you've been told. You have 4,094 grandparents, over 12 generations, with thousands of love stories, battles, difficulties, sadness, happiness, and expressions of hope for the future that allows you to be here today. We are the culmination of so many things we did not choose. It was designed that way. So be gentle with yourself and others. Take the time to learn yourself through your family history stories. There are innumerable tributaries flowing into the life experience that deceptively seems to be your own, but it's not. So think about that as you row, row, row your boat gently down the stream. Russell M. Nelson stated When our hearts turn to our ancestors, something changes inside us. We feel part of something greater than ourselves. <laughs> I concur. Thank you for joining me on another unbelievably true adventure. Find your family history superpower and activate it. Until the next time, bye.